the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good morning. By the way, you are welcome if you are family to uh, pull your seats together. You don't need to sit uh, socially distanced with uh, members of the same household. Well, it's good to see all of you here. Uh, I know that there's some also who are live streaming. Uh, those of you here earlier heard that there are some who are doing both, apparently. They are live streaming on their phones. And there's a little mistake earlier. Someone had their live stream going. Well, welcome. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, uh, what you may not know is that we are studying the longest section of the New Testament on the subject of church discipline. What's more is that in all of Paul's writings, there is no other Pauline writing or teaching that speaks more forcefully about the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, the holiness of the church, and how we are to stand corporately before Him as a church. And we are in our third and final sermon in our series, Discipline or Defilement. And this title summarizes the entirety of chapter 5, which we've been studying. And the idea is simply that we can choose to either practice church discipline in any step, whether it's one-on-one, admonishing, rebuking, confronting sin, or proceeding all the way through the four steps, or be defiled as a church. Last week, we looked at the powerful ill effects of not dealing with sin, the influence or leavening power that one person has in the entire body. Today, we will continue this series by looking at four clarifications to avoid defiling the church. Four clarifications that we must understand. Four clarifications to avoid defiling the church. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 5 verses 9 through 13. Follow along as I read those. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, closing out the chapter in verses 9 through 13. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. For clarifications... To avoid defiling the church. The first clarification or first point this morning is the exception to the rule. The exception 
to the rule. Look at verse nine, verses 9 and 10 again. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, that is outside of the church, unbelievers, or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, again, speaking of unbelievers, for then you would have to go out of the world. Now, in the canon of Scripture, in the New Testament, we have two letters that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, understanding that the ultimate author was the Holy Spirit. What Paul is referring to when he says, I wrote to you previously, is a previous letter that we don't have. It's not in the Scriptures, but it was a letter that the church of Corinth had received from the Apostle Paul. In that letter, according to verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, he told the church of Corinth not to associate with immoral people. And we can safely assume he kind of left it at that with, as a general principle. Now, when he says immoral people, again, he's talking about, and this is what the Greek word is referring to, sexually immoral. Okay? We know in English, immorality speaks of no morals or lack of morals or defunct mor morality. But here it is explicitly speaking of those who engage in sexual immorality. And again, what is this referencing to? It's re referencing that particular individual in that church 2,000 years ago who was allowed to stay in the church, who they were even bragging in some way about their sin, that person's sin, and it was sexual immorality. It was in, uh, specifically incest. And so he starts off with this. Much like today, this was a common activity in, in ancient Corinth, sexual immorality, to the point that the city was actually well known for this in the ancient world. And when you think about the Roman Empire and how much there were things that people could be known for, for an entire city to be known for this is pretty astonishing. Now you take that to today, there's no, at least in the United States, there's no particular city that's known for this because we're all known for this. Every city is known for this. It's the norm. It's the status quo. And what Paul was telling them back then was that they were not to mingle or socially associate in a close way with anyone who they knew to be engaging in illicit sexual activity. The word associate means to, uh, to regular association. Literally, the Greek means mix up with, okay? Don't socially interact with these people. The word he uses here, associate, as it's translated for us, is actually a more intense word, a uh, Greek word of mix up with, and it refers to intimate or close company. And it seems that this original statement, do not associate with immoral people, in this previous letter, which we don't have, was misunderstood to a certain degree by the Corinthians. They thought that Paul meant all immoral people in the world, whereas he only meant immoral people, unrepentant immoral people in the church, those who claim to be Christians. And Paul goes on to say, by the way, I'm going to use a phrase like that, and he even says that, so-called brother, those who call themselves Christians, the, those who claim to be Christians. In the context of this passage, and I'll clarify this more later, 
This is all Christians. Sometimes we, we, we use this term to refer to those who claim to be Christians, but we are pretty sure are not Christians. But in our, for our context this morning, this is all Christians, including myself and yourself. We all claim to be Christians. Some are, some aren't. Now, Paul goes on to say that it would be impossible to disassociate with all immoral people in the world because the world is full of immoral people. The whole world is full of immoral people, especially in their context of Corinth, as I just explained, right? The world is, 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 is just rampant with sexually immoral people, especially in Burlingame, excuse me, I, I meant especially in the Bay Area, uh, no, especially in California, no, I don't know what's wrong with me today. What I meant to say was especially today in the entire modern world. Nope, not, that's not. Especially in ancient Corinth. You get my point. It's everywhere here today. If Paul meant all immoral people, the only way they could disassociate from these people would, he says, to be to go out of the world which is an exaggeration. You, you can't do that. And we don't know how the Corinthians' misunderstanding played out, but he's correcting them here. You can see the wrong result or misinterpretation of this on either extreme end of the spectrum. Either they found this, as Paul says here, to be impossible, right? They thought he meant all immoral people in the world, so they said, well, this is impossible. We can't do that. This is Corinth. So, their response was to completely ignore the instruction, including their associations with immoral in the church. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, maybe they tr- truly didn't even try to avoid any immoral people, um, or sorry, they did try to avoid all immoral people and thus cut all contact with the outside world, with unbelievers. Neither of those is acceptable. It is neither acceptable to ignore the instruction of Scripture or, as some have tried in the history of mankind, to disassociate from the world and just go up on a mountainside and become a monk. Or, as some of you are very familiar with, start making rules to somehow morally disassociate with those people, such as if you're in full-time ministry, it is forbidden to get married. doesn't work. And it's all unacceptable. After all, we are neither to tolerate such sin in the church nor remove our influence on the world through testimony and evangelism. And he lists some other sins here that he mentions other than immorality. I do want to unpack these other sins, and I will, but I'll do that in our next point, in our next verse, because he lists these same sins but actually adds more in the next verse. But the point here is that there is an exception to the rule of disassociating with or from unrepentant sinners. And that exception is non-Christians, unbelievers, those who claim to be unbelievers or rather probably uh, more commonly do not claim to be Christians. And we'll talk more about this later. We need to remember why we're here. And I don't mean in this room, I mean why we're here on earth. We are to be in the world as salt and light, but not 
of the world. You've heard that before. Be in the world, physically present, interact, be a, a good member of society, but you are not to be of the world, which means you are not to have worldly thinking, worldly ways. Now, it's easy to have the in the world part of it down. You just have to exist. But the reason we are here is so we can practice the Great Commission, not just to be in the world, to use the world for our personal profit. More money, happiness, house, cars, home, all of those things. If you just see the world as a means to an end, even if that end, and listen carefully, even if that end is worship with believers and attending church, then you're wrong. The world is a means. What are the means? You need to make money to survive, to eat. You need to have relationships to influence people. You need to own and rent a home to shelter your kids so they can survive, so you can disciple them. But that ability to survive is not just so you can survive and enjoy all the spoils of the world, but so you can represent Christ. God gives you money, God gives you a house, God gives you the ability to live and survive and to have food and things which, yes, you are allowed to enjoy, but it's a means to an end and it is for influence of the gospel, to shelter your kids so you can disciple them, so you can preach the gospel to them. And if and when they get saved, you can train them to do the same. Be happy. Be overjoyed. Weep in gratitude. And a, a, a holy type of pride in your child. I'm so happy that you made it and you've gotten married and you've bought a home and what a beautiful home it is. Enjoy it. But son, preach the gospel. Do what I raised you to do. Think about it. Everything God wants us to do, we do stained with sin. I am preaching to you the Word of God as influenced by my sin. You are listening, trying to focus, trying to apply. You will leave here trying to change your life based on these words, but stained by sin... So if God really wanted us to just worship, just be together, just know His Word, we would not be here. We would be in heaven where we will worship perfectly, perfectly. Not human orchestra perfection, but sinless perfection. You will know the Word without your biases, without your, uh, that's tough to do. You will know it perfectly. You will understand it perfectly. You will know him perfectly, sinless. There is only one thing that God wants us to do that we cannot do in heaven, which is evangelize because the unbelievers will not be there. If you think it's a noble thing as a Christian just to disassociate from the world and just because I just need to study the Bible all the time, then you miss the whole point of why he's here why you're here. 
That's not the point. Again, if, God, if that was the point, you would be in heaven where God would have you know it perfectly. We are here for a reason, salt and light. To evangelize, to be a testimony. Man, things are bad out there, right? The immorality, not just sexual, all immorality in our world. Things are getting worse and worse. We're immune to it. Right? We, we, it doesn't even shock us anymore. Stuff that shocked you 10, 15 years ago, you see walking on the street and say, I'm pretty sure he was not born a he, doesn't shock you anymore. Some of your favorite actors and actresses and newscasters who you watch, you, you hang on their words, are living a lifestyle that would have shocked you just 10 years ago. But you're immune to it now. We're okay with it. But do you know how much worse things would be without the church? Salt and light is not just the gospel. It, is, it centers around the gospel, but it's not just evangelism. Just by the way we live and being part of the community, how we vote, how we raise our kids, how we live in this community, how we say, no, 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 that's not okay. How we tell our teachers, no, 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 we don't want you to teach that. Power in numbers. Salt preserves. Do you understand by your very existence and the existence of the church over the last 2,000 years, as bad as things are going, we've slowed down by God's grace and God's power. We have slowed down the decay of this otherwise piece of rotting meat we call earth. I'm not talking about the planet. I'm talking about the people. They live in darkness. That's why God calls it the light. They live in darkness, and we are to shine the light of the gospel and living out the gospel. But I think a lot of times we say, uh, you know, I actually have no problem being in this world. I think it's fair to say that many of us struggle to long for Christ's coming, to long for the rapture, to long with, be with Him because like... Yeah, I'm just mm, about to get that promotion. Well, yeah. I, I want Christ to come, but I'm engaged, and I, you, He knows I've been wanting a family. He knows I've been wanting to be married. Can I just, can He just, come when you want, come when you want, but can you maybe just wait till a few more people get saved or watch my kids first step or, right? We need to be careful. And this is even what Paul's talking about, right? He, he's saying like, oh, no, no, don't disassociate from the world, silly. I think a lot of times we're doing the opposite. We, we love the world too much, and I think we, we need to be careful. We don't see what God has put us in, what God has given us as license to be in the world and of the world. 1 John 2.15 is perhaps one of the most powerful and convicting passages for the average Christian living in Silicon Valley. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Yeah, you know, I, that's a good point. Well, he continues. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John says it over and over again in 1 John. 
And in case the wording is confusing, he's basically saying if you love the world, you're not a Christian. Not if you love the world, you're not acting like a Christian. If you love the world, you're not a Christian. Because you can't serve two masters. Right? You either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You, you can't have two. How, how refreshing it is. How refreshing it is when I counsel people who are walking away from the Lord and I tell them, hey, you can't serve two masters. And he's, they, they say, I, I, I'm not. I'm full on just serving the world now, and I know that. That's refreshing. And I think you get why. No, I'm not. You know, I can have both. Man, then that, that's tough. That's tough. That's a tough counseling situation when they think they're fine because they don't see it. We need to be careful. Back to 1 Corinthians. The disassociation from such people, regardless of their sin, does not apply to the unbelieving world for salt and light reasons. Let me give you a second clarification that we need to avoid or clarification we need to have, rather, to avoid defiling the church. The explanation of the requirement. We've seen the exception to the rule, unbelievers, and now the explanation of the requirement, verse 11. But actually, and now he clarifies, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul clarifies even further, and what he was saying in his last letter, again, the one we don't have, when he said not to associate with flagrant, unrepentant sinners, is only applicable if that person says he is a Christian. does not matter whether you think he's a Christian or not. If he claims to be a Christian, this applies. So be careful not to view this term as I kind of alluded to earlier, so-called brother as sarcasm or even as an insult as we would today, right? Oh, okay, let's meet this so-called girlfriend of yours, right? We use that term uh, jokingly. That's not what he's doing here. Take it more literally. It refers to someone who genuinely calls himself a believer, That's why the ESV says, bears the name of brother, or NIV, calls himself a brother. Ultimately, we can't know the heart. We can't truly know who is a real believer or not because you cannot know their heart. And we can all be fooled by externals. You can have a pretty strong belief that I, your pastor, am a Christian, but ultimately you cannot know because you don't know my heart. And so we can only apply church discipline based on what people profess, based on what people say. And discipline must be done on all of those. To be clear, do not associate means for the professing Christian church discipline. This would be when you get to step four, and again, in this whole chapter, Paul doesn't mention the steps, but it's back in Matthew 18. So if he's put out of the church, at that point, you do not associate with these people. At the end of the verse, Paul elaborates and explains that it isn't just removal from the church or me, you know, just, you know, he, he, 
he can't come anymore, or even just uh, disallowed from the early church practice of sharing a meal together. When they would get together, they would eat a meal together. We used to do this once a month. They would do it every time. He says not even to eat with such a one, meaning we are not to have social interaction with them outside of the church. We are to call them to repentance. We are to evangelize them. But that's different than a social interaction. Casual social interactions, hanging out, these are forbidden. Obviously, there are certain exceptions where this is unavoidable, family members, bosses, things like that. There will be more interaction. But as a general rule, they are cut out from the church and our lives outside of admonishment and evangelism. And this goes back to the purity of the church. We understand that keeping Christ's bride pure is very important in terms of removing the believer from the church. And you get that. You get that the church is not a building, right? We are the church. Church isn't just for a couple hours on Sunday morning, right? Well, grammatically it is based on your context, but as the individuals, we don't stop being the church because we're separated. We didn't stop being the church because we were sheltering in place, right? We are all still the church. And so it's not just about Sunday mornings. It's about even our personal lives and how we interact with these people. It's purity of the bride of Christ. And I do understand that this is still a hard concept for many people. But imagine... One of your best friends is getting married. Everyone's happy. Everyone's excited. It's the night before. You're at the wedding rehearsal dinner. And you happen to be going to the bathroom out in the hallway of the hotel, and you hear two people talking. And you look around the corner, and it's one of the groomsmen talking to the bride. And you listen closer, and... He's trying to get her drunk and to seduce her the night before her wedding. You wouldn't pull him aside and say, hey, brother, we're all tempted, man. God loves you. It's okay. You'd kick him out of the restaurant. You'd kick him out of the hotel, and he would be forbidden from getting anywhere near that wedding tomorrow. That's church discipline. Church discipline and the purity of the bride of Christ is even more serious than the illustration I just gave you. And that's what unrepentant sin does to us, the bride of Christ, when we don't deal with it. It's sickening. The purity of the church is also about being set apart for God. Not just because we attend church, not just because, oh, I'm set apart. You're, you, got all, you guys out there, you're all watching football right now. I'm set apart because I'm here. That's part of it. That's not all of it, not even close. It's not even our various rituals and, and customs. It's our strict moral standards and why we hold to those moral standards. We are not to withdraw from the world, but we are to speak and behave in a manner that is different than the world. 
So much so that our conduct makes professing Christians who ignore biblical morality feel unwelcome and very uncomfortable. We should live in a way that we, before we even say anything, they're uncomfortable. Even if that speech and behavior that we exhibit is directed specifically at them in the form of admonishment. And when we do that, that keeps us pure as a body, but also as an added benefit, it keeps our testimony pure. I want you to be very careful as you live out your life that you understand this is an added benefit. I've spoken before about how wrong it is to live the Christian life purely motivated by a good testimony. That's just a a, a spiritualized form of the fear of man. We are to be motivated by God's glory and worship of Him and of testimony. Good testimony will naturally result. But as a side benefit, as an added bonus, it keeps our testimony pure. In other words, we don't mar our testimony and integrity in such a way that it hinders our evangelistic efforts. As Jesus said, if salt has become tasteless, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. And sometimes people say, well, I kind of need to compromise in order to build that relationship for the gospel. And let's say they finally hear the gospel. You really think your friend, your relative is not going to see through the hypocrisy? Are you really modeling the life, the compromise that you want them to live should your prayers be answered and that they get saved? I mean, you don't even need me to say this. Look at all the churches you guys left to come to this church, the seeker-sensitive, the seeker-friendly. They compromise for evangelism. How's that going for them? Well, they're building a new building because they've doubled their congregation. Yeah, how many are saved? How many even know they're sinners? Well, I'm sure, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe because they don't preach sin there. You see my point? You may get people to come along, but they're not saved. How can they be if you've compromised the gospel? And so, we must be salt and light. We must keep our integrity and our testimony pure and according to God's word, never letting anyone convince you that if you compromise that you will win more. It just is not biblical. It grieves the spirit. It makes you the one in power, not God, in evangelism and salvation. And then it keeps the church pure. You need to understand that as hard as it may be for us, these unrepentant Christians have themselves forfeited the right to fellowship. That is a privilege. It is a gift. And for us to fellowship them would be condoning their sin and disregarding the command to maintain the holiness of the church. That is proper for us to be able to be in the presence of the Lord. Let's backtrack for a minute. And look at this list of sins. Keep in mind that these are sins that are not repented of for them to warrant church discipline. And even the way that even, even the words indicate something that's, you know, far deeper than, oh, I got drunk once. Or far worse than, oh, I visit a Buddhist temple on my trip to Malaysia. Or, you know, oh, I, I blew it with my girlfriend one time or whatever it may be. This is unrepentant, continuous sin. 
I've already briefly explained immorality as sexual immorality. This is someone who is frequently satisfying his or her lusts with sexual indulgence. This would include prostitution. This was very common in Corinth. This was very common uh, in the cult temples. It was part of their worship of these false gods. So I would also clarify this is either soliciting a prostitute or being a prostitute. This would include homosexuality. This would include any obscene sexual acts, not according to the world, mind you. This would be, of course, anything involving children, relatives, animals, and unmarried individuals. Yes. Premarital sex or sex with someone who is not your spouse is on the same list of vices and comparable to bestiality and pedophilia in the eyes of God. You need to understand this. It is immorality. Covetous is the next one, or greed or greedy in many of your translations. This is the sin of seeking to fulfill one's desires at all costs, including at the expense of others. It's a word for those who overreach, those who want more and more. It's never enough for them. And when it's never enough, you're not satisfied with what is yours. And you can see how jealousy and greed go hand in hand. Thankfulness, of course, is the antidote. The greedy or the covetous are clearly not content or grateful to the Lord for what they have. And it's not uncommon for such people to defraud or take advantage of others for what they want because their lives are about having more stuff. Their lives are not about serving people. Avarice if you're familiar with that word, is a very good English word for what Paul is talking about here. Although last on the list uh, in our verse here, swindler is second in verse 10. And that is because covetous and swindler are joined with a single definite article and they go hand in hand. You can't be a swindler without being covetous. This is the person who takes it a step further and is even willing to use violence to get what he wants. A professional thief or robber would be, a, would be this, to use violence, right? They try to sneak in and sneak out, but if they're caught, they will use violence. Extortionists are an example of a swindler. But this could also include even those who who, uh, loan out money at exorbitant interest rates, either a professional loan shark, for example, or even you trying to be greedy and helping out a relative or friend but just give a crazy uh, interest rate or interest rate at all. Or even someone who squeezes the poor to make a buck. In Paul's day, the general perception that people had uh, was that the supply of goods was enough only so long as you could convince or suppress the poor to not have as much. And so it was very common to be a swindler. The greedy would come in and swindle, thus threatening the balance of society and causing an even deeper poverty for others because they got rich by depriving and defrauding other 
people. An idolater, you know what this is, very common in the ancient world. This would have included almost all of the non-Christian population of Corinth. It was a very religious time, uh, not the true religion, but everyone worships some sort of idol, or almost everyone. And an idolater is simply someone who worships a false god. Keep in mind that Paul is referring to those in the church, remember? those who call themselves Christians. So there were those who would call themselves Christians but still follow after gods that, in reality, were no gods at all. Now, the first three that we covered were particularly rampant in ancient Corinth. But he also goes on and says reviler. A reviler is an insulter, uh, someone who's really abusive. He attacks others with harsh and abusive language. This covers all kinds of verbal abuse, and it reflects the kind of coarse language that is not proper in mixed company and was often associated with the dregs of society. You understand this. Although it has been popularized by Hollywood and certain genres of music, there is still less now than there were a generation ago. But generally speaking, even in our society, there is a type of profane, coarse language that you associate uh, with poor, less educated type of people. This is what we're talking about. Ultimately, like all of these, it's a a hard issue. The reviler doesn't care about anyone's reputation, doesn't care about loving or honoring other people. Every time they open their mouths, it seems they are putting others down. They are hurting them, which stems from a contemptuous a superior attitude towards other people. It's pride. Then you have a drunkard. This is excessive indulgence in alcohol and frequent intoxication. This, of course, uh, to bring it into a modern context, would also include the abuse of drugs. To fully understand this, you have to understand uh, this kind of the nuances of what Paul is saying here in that culture 2,000 years ago. Paul lived in what we would call a wine culture. Oh, yeah, you say, I know wine culture. I'm Italian. No, not even close to anything you have experienced or will experience today. You see, back then, there were no water processing plants. There were no chemical additives as much as you may complain about them in your tap water. They are saving your life. Water was dirty. It was diseased. It was deadly. It could be connected to sewage. So wine was used as an antiseptic to clean water. Water, or excuse me, wine was dried or using the cooking term reduced into a paste. And so you'd have this paste. And you throw a little bit in your jar or jug of water to cleanse and kill the impurities. We do that today. Oh, man, do we do that today with COVID, right? little alcohol to clean the impurities off of your hands. And so, of course, back then there was also the wine that was closer to what we know as wine today. Generally speaking, though, very much lower alcohol content. So this is the context, the cultural context he's speaking to. 
By the way, this is the context he's speaking to, so it helps us to understand that when Paul actually tells Timothy, for example, to take a little wine, it is not licensed necessarily to drink alcohol the way we may do it socially today. Okay? Jesus turned water into wine, right? He purified that water. That is not licensed to drink. I just want to say that. It's not wrong to drink. You've heard me say that before, but you cannot use this biblical principle to justify it either. Back to the context. So Paul is not calling for total abstinence in that culture because that would be a potential death knell for the entire church. What he was calling for was the same pursuit of discipline and regard for others that we as Christians are to have in every area of life. Discipline and selflessness. All of these in this list are type of people who, again, if they claim to be believers and are not uh, repentant, are to be put out of the church to the degree that we are not even to socialize with them outside of the church. Now, this list has all the lists of vices that Paul lists uh, in all of his epistles is not exhaustive. In other words, it's not every sin that can be church disciplined, but we still need to be careful when we add to it. Stick to God's Word. So, to this point, Paul has clarified that he's not talking about those outside of the church. He's talking about those within the church, attending the church community, right? Because they may be unbelievers that call themselves Christians, so they're not literally the church, the body of Christ, but they're attending or being uh, part of the community. I think you understand this. And now he goes on to explain this distinction in regards to his and our as a church responsibility. The third clarification is the extent of the responsibility. The extent of the responsibility. Look at verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Verse 13 but those who are outside, God judges. Outsiders, of course, are those outside of the church. As such, they are not within Paul's jurisdiction as an apostle, as a pastor, as a Christian. So, might I add, they are outside of your jurisdiction. Verse 13, why? They are within God's and God's only jurisdiction. He will judge them. You don't need to judge them. You don't need to worry about them. They will do what they will do. It should actually surprise you if they don't act like unbelievers because they're unbelievers. Why are you shocked when unbelievers do what they do when you know theologically they are enslaved to sin? They have no other choice but to sin. However, we are to judge those who are within the church, anyone who claims the title Christian. And this judgment is essentially what this whole chapter has been saying. It is bringing an unrepentant sinner before the judgment bench, as it were, of the church. We then proclaim a verdict. Now, there's a strong emphasis here on the difference between those within and those without. The brethren and the world. In regard to the believers, we must judge. In regard to the unbeliever, it is none of our business. As a reminder, and I touched on this last week, what we're talking about 
is different than judging the heart, which we are prohibited from doing, and frankly, we do not have the ability to do. This is talking about judgment as in an objective verdict. In other words, if what this professed Christian does or say violates the Christian faith and all attempts of the church to apply the Scriptures in admonishment and bringing about repentance have failed, then the sinner must be judged, a verdict announced that he no longer belongs within the church. Put this all together, when it comes to those outside the church, you are free to associate with them because it is God, not you, who judges them. And when it comes to those inside the church, we must practice strict discipline because it is association with sinners within the church that makes us take on the impurity or sinful character of the sinner. The impurifying, the leavening effect, as we saw last week. So, the extent of our responsibility when it comes to disciplining others through judgment is confined to the body of Christ. How does that judgment play out? That leads us to our fourth clarification, the explicitness of the removal. The explicitness of the removal. We've seen three of the four clarifications to avoid defiling the church, the exception to the rule, unbelievers, the explanation of the requirement, believers, the extent of the responsibility, the judging, only those within the church, and now the explicitness of the removal. The end of verse 13 where he quotes an Old Testament passage. When you see all caps, it's because generally they are quoting an Old Testament passage which says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul again explicitly states what we know he has been saying all along. Remove this unrepentant sinner from the church. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 17.7. There, for Old Testament Israel, there was a theme of something you might have heard before, blood guilt. Blood guilt. This was a corporate responsibility in the tribe or even the whole nation of Israel all of them responsible for one person's sin. Millions for one. In other words, the whole community was held responsible even if it was just one among them. That's why it was then the community's responsibility to put him or her out. The purity of the church, the purity of God's people must be preserved. And when every step of church discipline has been taken and there is still no repentance, then the spiritual health and safety of the church can only be maintained with this swift and decisive action. Then the church returns to its pure, holy, unleavened state. And rest assured that since our power comes from God and the health of our relationship with Him, this is very important. A pure church is a powerful church. A pure church is a powerful church. And as a side note, this is why it's so important that we don't just say, yes, church discipline, let's do it, keep our body pure, but you need to be just as serious about your own personal secret sins. Every sin 
that we unpacked that Paul lists for us in verse 11 has parallels in Deuteronomy. And for every one of them in Deuteronomy, God's people were either to, quote, purge the evil from among you or stone them to death, which in many cases was how they purged the evil from among them. Sin is serious. In addition to removing the impurity of the one for the purity of the whole, the removal of the evil had another goal or intended effect. And this was to make others in the community afraid so as to keep from doing the same thing. And to be perfectly frank with you, this is also true of church discipline. And when you think about it, striking fear in the hearts of the obedient so that they will refrain from delving into the same sin is yet another way that God keeps His church pure. And it is not the fear of man. It is the fear of God because it is God's decision and plan that we're talking about here. And so, to clarify, as Paul clarifies for the Corinthians, clarifying his previous letter, we need to understand what our role is as a church, what your role is as an individual Christian, and what your role isn't, that is, uh, judging unbelievers. Socially associating with unbelievers? Absolutely. Share the gospel. But just be careful that you're not using them because you're just trying to get ahead. Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? If it is the case that your neighbors and colleagues or whoever, relatives, are more aware of who you're going to vote for on November 3rd than they know who you worship and serve and will spend eternity worshiping, there is a problem, don't you think? If people know what your job is and don't know you're a Christian, there is a problem. If you have dark hair and relatively dark skin so that people aren't sure what ethnicity you are, but they do know but don't know you're a Christian, there is a problem because your faith is more important than your ethnicity. What Christ's blood has done for you is more important than your DNA. Who your heavenly Father is, is more important, as much as you are to love and honor them, who your biological father or adopted father is. Do you understand this? And so, when we use the world for the unimportant, then you've got it all mixed up. And you have missed the whole point of the gospel. You've missed the whole point of God continuing 
or Adam and Eve to have children and to save Noah and his wife and for them to have children born as unregenerate to be saved by Jesus Christ to be salt and light in this world. Could have just snuffed out the human race and say, just keep making angels or people to worship me in. But when it comes to those within the church, we are to practice church discipline. But before that, I would hope and I would pray, as there have been in the past, hours, days, weeks, buckets of tears and begging and pleading, bloody knees from beseeching the Lord for repentance. But if it comes to this, we must do what God commands us to do for His glory and the purity of His bride. The exception to the rule, the explanation of the requirement, the extent of the responsibility, and the explicitness of the removal. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from, from among yourselves. By God's grace, this uh, in any church, uh, is rare, this level of church discipline. But this is not a passage that we just tuck away and say, okay, let's, well, what did he, let's tuck it, you know, look it up when this happens. There are things to learn now. And if there's anything, big concept, big principle to learn now, is the glorious desire and demand of God for the purity and holiness of His church. As if we didn't already know this because He butchered His Son for us. Why do you use those words, slaughtered, butchered? It wasn't a firing squad. He didn't even just have a Roman guard just slit His throat. He whipped, He beat, He mocked, He crucified. He butchered His Son for the purity of the church. We need to take it seriously. And, and this is like one of those, you know, uh, intros to a movie or YouTube video where you see the earth spinning from the perspective of the space station and then it zooms in, zooms in, zooms in and you see the outline of the countries and then buildings and then one individual. Big principle to you. Not you, plural, you. 
every single one of you. If God takes seriously the purity of the church and you are to take seriously the purity of the church, you need to repent of your sin. It's not okay. Well, that guy, no. You, your love of money could end up being greed. And even if you're far from that, even just your little penny pinching, if it's a love of money, you need to repent. If it's a lack of love of other people, you need to repent. If it's just an occasional burst of anger, you need to repent. If it's incredible faithfulness and contentedness with your wife, but just once in a while there's that glance, you need to repent. Take sin seriously because your purity is the purity of the church. We are not told to stand firm and see how strong you are. We are told to flee, run, sprint away from temptation. Get away from it. Don't play with it. Well, I don't really, you know, I have my thing in check, and it's usually this situation, but, you know, I, I really like that place. I really like that. And then even though the decor and that one, one waitress really makes me angry, I think I can handle it because I really like the food. Come on. Get out of there. Break up with that relationship. Call off the marriage. Call off the wedding. Get a new job. Move out of state. Take the long way commute if that billboard bothers you. Take sin seriously. That means seeking accountability. If this means an end to, look, you know I love you guys. I love our small group leaders. I love how small group is running, how much you guys are growing through that. But can we get rid of, rid of the high school student prayer request? Oh, it's been hard at work. I have a test coming up. We're a church. We need to seek accountability. We need help from each other, from God's Word. Take sin seriously because it means the purity of the church it means the glory of god let's pray heavenly father i pray that we would be a people who take sin seriously for your glory not because of reputation not because we want to look good not because we want just to have a happy marriage or successful kids or whatever it is but because we desire to worship you and to glorify you. Lord, we all sin, and we all have sin to repent of, and so I pray that we would all take this seriously and not just sit back and wait to see how we can participate in dealing with someone else's sin. I pray that we would do that lovingly and graciously, but we would also, first and foremost, deal with our sins seriously for your glory, for our purity for the purity of your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.